Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live from Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. You can, you can listen to the whole show. But uh, like the Metropolitan Police of the eyes of the Home Secretary, here we like to play favourites and we bring you the best bits of the show. Uh, coming up on today's episode, we try to go inside the mind of Nadine Doris and talk about the plot, not the thing that she's lost, but a new book out all about how apparently it's everyone else's fault that Boris Johnson isn't Prime Minister anymore. Uh, Patrick Maguire has read it so you don't have to. And we'll ask Danny Finkelstein if he is part of the movement which helped bring down Boris Johnson. Uh, we'll also hear from a Boris Johnson supporter as well. Uh, so that's coming up in uh, just a moment. But first, there's quite a lot for us to discuss in the news, but luckily we've got the best possible people on a Thursday. Manveen Rana and someone called Matthew on Times Radio. Yes, we're joined by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Hi, Manveen. Hello. And I think for the first time since we've had this silly jingle, this week's Matthew is Matthew Syed. Hello, Matthew. Morning. So who is it? It's always a Matthew, but it's always not, a Matthew. It's a different ma- ah, the, so Matthew, Matthew Paris. We've right? had Matthew Paris. We've had Matthew Bell. Uh, we've had Matthew Holhouse. It slightly <laughs> fell over once when we had Matt, Matt Fry and it turned out he was a Matthias. But that's what you get from ah. Channel 4 News. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, it's nice to have you here. Uh, nice to have you here, Matthew. Um, let's start with Suella Barfman. Um, yeah. And the article she's written in the Times today, claiming the Metropolitan Police play favourites when giving the go-ahead to demonstrations. Uh, she uh, says that the pro-Palestinian marches have been problematic from the start. She again calls them hate marches. Uh, she says she's all doubled down, doubles down on that. Uh, we've now seen the Labour Party, the Lib Dems, everyone calling for her to be sacked. It's unclear at this point whether or not Number 10 signed off on the uh, article or were just shown a copy of it without being able to do anything about it. On, before we get to the broader politics of it, does she have a point about the police bias? Matthew? I think she's a despicable politician. I I use that word quite deliberately. I am typically reasonably tolerant of politicians seeking to get ahead, but to use this issue as a way to divide our country and to the statistical fallacy at the heart of what she says is so glaring. There are many people on these marches, many who are peace-loving, decent people who have a point of view which some of us disagree with, but to call them hate marchers, in that uh, in that broad fashion, I think is is completely disgraceful, and it's very obvious what she's doing. She uh, has clearly given up on on Rishi Sunak. Sunak is so weak for for not uh, sacking her. I mean, she's been doing this for for weeks and months. Um, I, I don't think he's turned out to be the prime minister that so many of his backers said he would be. I think he's been a, a massive disappointment. But she is trying to become the the next leader after the Conservatives lose the next general election. And because the the Conservatives elect their leader on a one-member-one-vote basis, she's appealing to a relatively extreme group of of people. And and it's a very cynical and calculating ploy, exactly the opposite of what you would expect from a a half-decent top-line politician. Um, Manveen, would you like to mount the defence of Suella Braverman? No, (laughs) I think I agree with every word that Matthew just said. Um, You know, if anything, I think it sort of just makes you think if that is the future of the Conservative Party, they're going to be 
out of power for quite some time. You know, this is language that divides society, but I think the bulk of society will see it as unhelpful, um, rather extreme, but also sort of, you know, for somebody who's supposed to be a lawyer, weirdly ignorant. Um, you know, if, if the Met does have a bias, it is towards upholding the law as it currently stands. Um, Rishi Sunak, who tried to play politics with this yesterday, you know, um, with very strong words, called Mark Rowley into, into number 10, but then sort of at the end of it admitted <laughs> that according to the law, this is an entirely legal march. There is nothing to stop it as things stand. Um, so, you know, the, the politics around it just seems a little bit ridiculous. And you'd think she'd know that. Uh, I find it odd that she doesn't. Her article, too, sort of just had that sort of, um, it reminded me of, you know, sort of 11-year-olds who who have just entered debating for the first time, where it's sort of a sense of, and another thing, I'll find another argument which completely disagrees with everything else I've just said, but it's another argument against this. So, you know, she sort of says these are hate marches, they shouldn't be allowed. At the same time, I think it's really unfair that the Met don't allow football hooligans <laughs> the same latitude. And I think anybody sensible who understands how we operate as a democracy and the importance of the right to march and protest as part of a healthy, organic democracy, understands that these marches that are taking place, you know, that there is a very valid political argument around what's happening in Gaza at the moment. A lot of people, to be honest, I think a lot of the Americans too, who are publicly supporting Israel would say it's probably quite helpful to show Israel that there is a lot of a lot of concern across Europe and across sort of countries that have, have supported them about how they conduct themselves in Gaza right now, about the high number of casualties, about the humanitarian crisis. So, you know, all of this is entirely valid, but to equate it with football hooliganism and, you know, sort of in the spirit of Magna Carta, we should all be protecting people's rights to be football hooligans as much as we are uh, protecting their rights to go out and, and march for, for humanitarian reasons just seems completely barking. Um, I'm not sure it's going to do her her political future much good. I mean, I think I think Matthew's right. I think this will appeal to certain sections of the party. Um, you know, I, I she's clearly pitching for the leadership, but if she does get it, I'm not sure many people will be supporting her party. It's not. I mean, it's also not clear. I have to say, having spoken to Conservative uh, MPs uh, recently and and over the last few months, it's not clear that she does have a huge base in the party, um, and that they. You know, even the ones that might agree with some of the legislation she wants to bring through, or you know, the the, the general approach she might take, she actually they, they they sort of a bit like Liz Truss and you know on the economy on the economy this time last year, they sort of feel that she's damaging their their cause. That actually some of them do think there are legitimate questions about the police. Some of them do think there are legitimate questions about you know the way that homelessness is treated and so on. But by overreaching so much, becoming sort of Suella Deville or the caricature that the, the opponents of the Tory party might want. She's actually dam damaging their cause. And this morning I got a text from a former cabinet colleague of Suella Bravman saying it's not really about whether she's left or right, it's really about her competence. I'm amazed she was ever even a junior minister. When she was Attorney General, she was all over the place. I think she should be let go at the reshuffle. She needs to learn how to govern before spouting promises she can never deliver. And to some extent, I suppose that's the other point, isn't it, Matthew? That she's you know, by by making such a massive issue of of uh, homelessness uh, at the beginning of the week, saying it was a lifestyle choice, uh, living in tents, and then not actually doing anything about that in the Queen's speech, by making such an issue about these marches, and then discovering that she she has no power to to do anything about that, um, it, she's in, in, so, to some extent sort of illustrating her own in, impotence and incompetence. Well. Um... I mean, and first of all, I, I think she is increasing her probability of winning the the leadership election. She's in the news. She's uh, making noise. 
And remember, the, the people who vote, it's, it's a tiny number. How many members of the Conservative Party are? A few, uh, what is it, a couple of hundred? I don't know. I should know the number. 150,000, I think, maybe last time around, yeah. And these are activists. I mean, I was a member of the Labour Party and stood for Parliament. A activists are not representative of the wider community. <laughs> and when Liz Truss, I mean, Labour had Ed Miliband when it really could have done with David. Uh, the Tories elected uh, Liz Truss. Um, and what it's effectively doing is skewing the way that ministers are acting in office because they are often thinking about how do we get promoted. And with a looming likely defeat, I think Braverman is increasing the probability of winning. And she is pushing the entire debate in a direction towards the right. Um, so she may well be incompetent, but I think she's acting, if her objective is to win the leadership, I think she's acting in a in a very grotesque way, rationally. Um, but the idea that you say that there are legitimate questions about the police, of course there are legitimate questions about all public institutions. But for a very long time, we were told the police were institutionally racist. They were right-wing, uh, they were National Front sympathisers. Now Braverman tells us that they're all wokesters uh, way off to the left. Manveen's point is, I think, correct, is describe it, tarnishing the police in this way and all of the people who are marching in a particular way is a kind of statistical category mistake. It, it lacks nuance. It lacks the kind of intelligence that is required in a politician to make a what you, you know a compelling case whilst not alienating large groups of people. It's the kind of thing that the worst kind of political commentator would do to appeal to a narrow bit of their readership to get retweeted. That's not what we want in politicians, but it's what we've got because our top politicians are appealing to 150,000 people on either party, Labour or Conservative. That's why Corbyn got elected. It was only a succession of defeats that enabled Labour to regain the sanity that if we want to win, we have to hire somebody a bit more moderate and a bit more wise. It's a good point. That. I mean, I must admit, my, my, the first thing I thought when I read the Swell Department piece in the Times today was that if if someone had pitched this as a comment piece for the through the, if one of us as columnists had pitched this as a piece, they might have thought it was a study on it's a bit much and doesn't quite hang together as an argument. But I presume we can't. I presume the comment desk don't do that when you're dealing with the cabinet minister um, any more than it seems. Number ten were able to change what she was uh, writing. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it pans out and whether or not. I mean, it doesn't look at this stage like Rishi Sunak's going to do anything about his um, home sector or feels he can do anything about it. Um, but then you sort of wonder where it's going to end up if she keeps on pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, let's move on to something different. Right now, the uh, the the COVID inquiry is ongoing. And uh, Juliet Samuel writes in The Times today about what she calls the new modelling army, which I thought was quite clever, is leading us astray, be it for lockdown, net zero or immigration. It must be ministers, not scientists or analysts who lead the way. She says that all the modelling uh, should uh, should not be used on uh, to lead on decision making. Leaders should do that. Um, uh, Manvi, what do you think? Um, I thought it was an interesting column. I can, you know, I can understand her frustration. As you look at sort of the COVID inquiry, you realise how often the models, you know, were sort of catching up with reality and scientists, you know, they, they didn't have all the answers to begin with. Uh, I I would disagree with her general thrust, though, in that I sort of feel like we've been here before. We've heard that we're sick of experts. Um, and, you know, as her own column, I think, acknowledges, if we'd left it to the politicians, we would have been in a world of trouble. You know, Boris Johnson wanted to, to go live on TV and be injected with COVID to convince the world that it was OK. Donald Trump, if, you're, if we all remember, wanted to treat it with bleach. You know, uh, thank God for the scientists. Um, I Reading her column, I sort of thought, actually, what it made me cry out for was a generation of politicians and decision makers 
who understood mathematical modeling better. That's where, where I think this has gone wrong. You know, they're presented with a model and I don't think they're asking enough questions around it and around the context or are able to say, fine, that's the model for, for what happens if the NHS is overwhelmed and, and it runs out of beds. But is there also a model for what happens if we send the elderly into um, into homes? And you know, what? How, how does that play out? Nobody was asking those questions. So uh, if anything, I think more modeling, but actually more mathematically literate um yeah. and challenge exactly politicians with judgment and politicians who understand statistics and models and know how to ask the right questions around them whereas it feels like they were sort of slightly in awe um and were just sort of you know were, were making mad u-turns every time they're presented yeah. with a different model rather than asking the challenging questions of them or asking for for more modeling which is what i think they should have been doing uh, well, also so you know the, the covid inquiry i think sort of shows us that they picked the science they wanted to at different points it's not well, as that's if, the, yeah of, follow the science because you know can, can, can basically mean whatever you want to mean matthew yeah. i know you spend a lot of time thinking about thinking um what do you make of the the balance between you know leadership and modeling and scientists versus politicians well, two, two things. I think it's worth saying a model is a simplification of reality. The great British statistician George Box said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, and, and I think, Manjeet, I'm not sure I agree that the, the, the Conservative Party, the, this iteration of it, are, are particularly in hock to models. All of the models said it was a bad idea to leave the European Union. Um, they decided that they were not interested oh, I, I, in the I think, in these I think we made an models. error We're already. We've we've been through this era of sort of saying we've had enough of experts and models. I think more models. I think <laughs> definitely more models needed. Right. So so <laughs> it's not but the point I was making, it's not like they were psychologically in hock to to, to modeling as a general political phenomenon. They they rejected the models, thought they were all a waste of time when it came to Brexit, and then accepted some of them. I mean, they didn't accept the modeling all the way through. The COVID pandemic. They disagreed with Sage when it came to the second and third lockdown. I mean, I think it's man. If I can say just more broadly on the inquiry, I did watch Cummings' testimony yesterday. I had a bit of time off in the in the afternoon, and I watched a bit of Mark Sedwell's testimony. Two things struck me. One, they, as often happens in inquiries, whenever they feel that they're in some difficulty, they all dump on Matt Hancock. So Hancock has become, <laughs> in, in in quite an interesting uh, sociological sense, the, the person that people turn to when they're struggling to give coherent answers. And this is often what happens in uh, situations where something has gone wrong. There is a strong human tendency to try and pin the blame on one particular identifiable person. I predicted in advance that this would happen during this inquiry, which has gone on for way too long. But Hancock seems to be that person. And even if Hancock made mistakes, it is always overly simplistic to do that. The other thing, nowhere near enough acknowledgement, regardless of whether they're using models or more uh, carbon variety human intuition, of the sheer confusion at the centre. I mean, Cummings alluded to it quite a bit, but I'd like to have heard more about just how difficult it was for scientists. Epidemiologists didn't have the whole story because it was about more than epidemiology. It was about virology, how long it would take to get a vaccine on which experts were completely divided, how long it would take to get uh, therapeutics, the behavioural likelihood of people staying at home if there was a lockdown mandate. Yeah. There were a few thousand variables interacting in complex ways. New information was emerging. I don't think we should expect 
this inquiry to be able to give a rational indication of what we should do with a future pandemic because its dimensions will be different. Yeah. Uh, what we need is a much better structure of decision-making, uh, more diverse teams, better interplay between the scientists and the politicians. There's a number of institutional things I think we can do differently and better, but the idea that we will be able to have a clear strategy for the next pandemic or any future existential threat, I think, is is mistaken. And I suppose, yeah, it goes to the heart of what you want is people who can also communicate those those um, decisions and the, the trade-offs that they're, they're making, their decision-making. Well, we'll see. I mean, maybe, maybe in an increasingly divided nation, the one thing that brings the nation together is blaming it on Matt Hancock uh, rather than the Dean Doris blaming everything <laughs> on the movement. Now, here's a question. How much would you be willing to pay to become Lord of the Manor? Lord of Walthamstow is coming to auction next month after the current holder... Uh, decided, uh, or at least his daughter decided, the life of a lady was not for her, so she didn't want it to be passed on. It's Philip Lee, who's a retired property developer and estate agent, who's selling the title to boost his pension. Well, the auction house Stretton's is selling it. Ben Tobin is a consultant there and joins me. Hi, Ben. Hi, good morning. So if um, uh, Manreen, Matthew or myself decided we wanted to become the Lord of Walthamstow, how much do you think we need? Very difficult to know, because... We haven't sold one of these since probably the 80s, maybe early 90s. In those days, they were going for between 10 and 20,000 um, pounds. You look at inflation since then, it's probably on property values, maybe 10 times. I doubt it's going to be as much as that. We're waiting to see how much interest we're going to get before we quote the guide price. And what do you get for it then? If I got my checkbook out, um, which so far I need a bit more tempting, what am I going to get for it? Not very much, except the title, <laughs> which we can use in certain circumstances and in certain ways. A nice coat of arms. Philip Lee says that he uses it mostly for getting rent, restaurant tables and hotel rooms. Um, there were all sorts of rights associated with these lordships of the manor. Most of those no longer exist or are no longer worth anything. It's just, it's a, it's a, a um, it's a frippery, a toy. It's a frippery, a toy. Right, ma'am, it, it, I mean, it sounds like just a very posh, sort of like personalised number plate. Uh, Manveen, Matthew, e either of you tempted? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also sort of think it sounds like it was a terrible investment. You know, it sort of cost about ten to 20000 back in the 80s. And um, I've just checked, and according to the, the piece in The Times about this, there are three other uh, titles up for sale at the moment, all for less than 10000 So... <sighs> It seems to be something that's losing value rather oh than gaining it. I know. I can't help thinking that's not a good investment well, if that's what you're looking for. When I saw the headline, I, I thought that the establishment had finally become open and transparent and was selling <laughs> seats in the House of Lords, which is what they've done behind the scenes for so long. The price thought, for that is last, a lot A higher. bit of transparency <laughs> to the highest bidder. Perish um, the thought we would get involved in that. So, of course, <laughs> as soon as I heard your dulcet tones, I knew that there were there could not possibly be anything <laughs> at all corrupt involved. So I, I, I read the story in more detail. But th this idea of getting better restaurant, I tried to book a restaurant this morning. For for Saturday, I'm taking my wife on Saturday night. They're now asking for fifty pound deposit. Have you have you had this man Veen? Yes. Yes. fifty pounds each. And just if you're, to if you're, if you're late or you don't turn up, uh, that that's all that's all gone. Although you know, if it is just for restaurant bookings, can I can I just suggest a slightly cheaper way of of being able to do that? Change your name by deed poll to Lord Matthew Said. And think I think you'd get away with it. I, I, I think that. I don't think they're checking, and you know they're not well, calling up the House of Lords. Well, Lord I want, I wanted that, Ben. Ben, could I not just phone up a restaurant and say I am Lord Chorley, and then they'll find <laughs> out that I'm not when I get there? You wouldn't do that, surely? 
Have, <laughs> you, seen, have you seen the but Faulty also, you Towers? You could be Lord, surely, if you just change your name by default. Yeah. Uh, have Lord you seen the Faulty Lord. Towers episode, by the way? With uh, I think it's the very first episode where uh, there's Lord Melbury. Who's a fake lord? Oh yes, uh, who uses it to steal the the the, the, the rare stamp collection of Basil <laughs> Thought. It's a fantastic episode. This uh, isn't this isn't a fake lord. This is a real. It's lord. a real lord. But you just no, don't I know. I know, I know. I know. This is a real lord. Well, I, to be honest, Ben, Ben, I don't think you've persuaded us as yet. I hope some people come, come forward on. for your auction. Uh, ben, Toby, thanks for joining us from Auction House. Travis. Matthew and Mavi. The main thing we know is if you hang around Times Towers long enough. Uh, everyone gets a knighthood in the end anyway, and, or, or a, a seat at the House of Lords, um, judging by the number of, uh, you know, Ed Vasey and Ruth Davidson and um, Danny Finkelstein, Ma- William Hake, come you're to us almost all. almost the only presenter who isn't one. Exactly. I thought I could be Lord Chorley of Chorley, it'd be quite funny, but um, uh, I'm probably a bit old now, given how young they are when they put them in the House of Lords. Manveen Rana and Matthew Side, of course, you can listen to Manveen every day on the Stories of Our Times podcast, wherever you get your podcast and read Matthew in the Sunday Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Up next, Inside the Mind of Nadine Doris. You're listening to the Redbox podcast. Now, it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It's time to begin asking those really serious questions. And Nadine Doris has gone undercover to ask those questions and reveal the plot. Yeah, so the former Culture Secretary's new book, The Plot, is out today. He claims Boris Johnson was ousted by a cabal that has been controlling the Tory leadership for two decades and Rishi Sunak as a stooge of them all. Well, Patrick Maguire, Times Radio's senior political correspondent, has read it so you don't have to. His review is now online. Uh, I was just uh, scanning through the review. In it, he says, this really is the single weirdest book I have ever read, and anyone who does not reach the same conclusion after reading it should be sectioned. Patrick Maguire joins me in the studio now. Um, Patrick, why does this book exist? That's such a good question and one I am no closer to answering despite having read it. Nadine Doris announced that she was going to write this book in November 2022, so a couple of months after Boris Johnson was ousted uh, from the Tory leadership, or rather uh, left the Tory leadership and was replaced by Liz Truss and subsequently Rishi Sunak. She says, so let's take her at her word, that she was so shocked by what she saw inside the corridors of power of Westminster that she had to leave frontline politics. She had to decline Liz Truss's offer of staying on as Culture Secretary to write this book, to write the account of how the movement, uh, in inverted commas, brought down Boris Johnson and how, in her words, people in streets like hers, the Breck Road in Liverpool, one of the most socially deprived areas in the country, she writes, they have a vote that is in reality a farce, a fake, than what power do ordinary people actually have? That's actually quite a good question, and I think she does ask it semi-sincerely, at least. The problem is the book is so convoluted, so badly written, so confused, that you don't come anywhere close to getting an answer to it. There's, there's a sort of good story somewhere buried beneath all the sort of invective about Michael Gove's divorce and 
the admiring descriptions of what Carrie Simmons is wearing, you know, about abuses of power in the Tory party, party unaccountable aides, etc., etc. But you're no closer to understanding any of that after wading through this, and I defy anyone to actually do it. Uh, before we get to the uh, substance, in terms of the style, large chunks of it are essentially transcripts of Zoom conversations with unnamed people. Yes, and all the the unnamed people, most of the unnamed people, are given code names <laughs> in line with Bond films. You know, Nadine has quite a limited sort of um, range of literary reference, which is sort of Mallory Towers, James Bond, The Lord of the Rings, uh, Harry Potter. Um, at one point, she chastises uh, some of Michael Gove's aides as childish for having a... A, a WhatsApp group called The Order of the Phoenix. And this is a book in which she gives elderly Tory grandees nicknames like Bambi and Thumper. Uh, so there's, 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 there are flashes of self-awareness in this book, but, 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 but not really that yet. Really uh, look, but, but that's why it makes it so difficult to read, right? There are dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews with faceless people that just go on and on and on and on. And you sort of like drift in and out of consciousness and then they say some stuff like... Tebbit was a wise man. He sensed the danger all along. And you think, what, what, so what, what, what's this book I'm actually reading? So, so and, and, you know, Nadine sort of, as she has tweeted this morning in response to Sarah Vine, Michael Gove's ex-wife, complaining about something she said about Michael Gove, she said, well, I didn't say that about Michael Gove. Uh, someone else just said it in one of the 20-page interviews I let run on and on and on. Yeah, she yeah. just sort of pops up at intervals. So this, to, is, this is Sarah Vine, the ex-wife of Michael Gove, challenging the suggestion Michael Gove wasn't a proper Brexiteer despite the fact that he was one of the most uh, Eurosceptic members of David Cameron's team and then fronted vote leave. Yeah, if, 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 you, if you believe the version of events in Nadine Doris's book, Michael Gove was just doing that to impress the yeah. Etonians in, uh, in, in David Cameron's cabinet. Um, but but the, the funniest, the funniest, you know, we'll get on to this, but, you know, she presents all these lyric conspiracy theories only to be told at one point. She goes, what's Michael Gove's endgame? And then the guy goes, there is no endgame, which... Um, is a good way of summarising this book. Um, so, yeah, to be clear, so the the, the, uh, the chapter headings alone in this book are terrific. Uh, chapter one, on a Majesty's Secret Service. Number two, Diver Girl. Uh, three, Boris facing off against Odd Job. Four, Money Penny. On and on it goes. Number six, Boris, the spectre of Dr. No. Uh, seven, just called M. Uh, there's Boris from the Jaws of Victory, Dance of the Fire, the Rise on the Wall, The World is Not Enough, Casino Royale. I mean, she's... It just goes on and <laughs> on and on. OK, well, let's, let's we'll, we'll dive into some of the detail in a minute. Patrick's read it. Will others read it? The Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, was asked if he was planning to read it when he was on Times Radio a bit earlier. Uh, no, I, d I don't think I'll be reading the book. Um, and Nadine is a, is a, is a very um, successful author of fiction, mm. uh, and I'm sure people will see this book in that light. Right, so to give listeners a taster, because Nadine won't... Uh, in fact, Nadine is going to be on Times Radio with Cathy Newman on Friday, uh, but uh, she's not joining us this morning. So we've got our very own Jane Garvey, the closest thing we could find to a scouser in uh, Times Radio Towers, uh, to, to, to give you a sense of some of, the, uh, of some of the key moments in the book which Patrick picked out. Maybe it's because I'm from Liverpool. Maybe it's because I was brought up on streets where you had to have your wits about you. Maybe it's just because I'm from up north where everything is less complicated. It was the best celeriac soup I'd ever tasted. Was it different in your day, Walpole? I would ask myself as I gazed up at his portrait. 
The light was fading fast as my chaperone handed me a Werther's original and spoke. Not for the first time, I thought to myself, Ian Duncan Smith was probably really quite good looking in his day. I smiled back and eased the peel from the fruit. Louise knew me well. She didn't only keep me safe on time and in check, she kept me fed too. But no one will speak to me, I wailed feebly. I'm not Tim Shipman. It'll be hopeless. I like to write historical and romantic novels. I sounded pathetic. It was early Sunday morning and Boris greeted me in the kitchen of his house in the Cotswolds. Both the lids of the Arga were up and I had to take a very deep breath. I'm a woman of a certain age who's had an Arga since I left the poverty of my background. However, you can never escape your upbringing. And the thing about an Arga is, when the lids are up, the heat is escaping. Jack Nori. Oh, Patrick. Uh, that that Arga thing is yeah. such a prime example, though, because that's... The amazing thing about this book is there are page after page of on-the-record interviews with Boris Johnson, yeah. which in another universe might be significant. He literally, you know, says that my chancellor was a stooge to betray me all along, which is quite a remarkable thing for a prime minister to say. But you, it's already hard to take Nadine Doris interviewing Boris Johnson seriously. But when a chapter opens with an observation about Argus, it's just completely... You can't take... You can't even suspend your disbelief and do the service of taking her attempts at journalism seriously. Well, let's hear then uh, some of the more serious claims from the Dean Doss. Here she is in her own words, actually, explaining the story, speaking on Talk TV this morning. So it starts really with the removal of Ian Duncan Smith, what that was about, why was Michael Howard imposed, what was that about? And then it was about David Cameron and George Osborne. And people who think David Cameron, um, his leaving and his resignation wasn't engineered. What I discovered was that by the actions of individuals, David Cameron really was, was pushed into that position of being not being able to do anything else other than resign. Michael Gove, as everybody I spoke to attested, was never a Brexiteer. And then suddenly, when David Cameron demoted him from the cabinet to his cabinet position as education secretary to chief whip, there is, there are, I mean, this is well attested in many newspaper reports and, and accounts that people have. Michael Gove was absolutely destroyed by that, literally destroyed. A, because he couldn't keep Dominic Cummings at his side any longer because there wasn't a role. Cummings was his aide, of course. Yeah, before. but been, he's long been his aide. I mean, Michael Gove is Dominic Cummings. Dominic Cummings is Michael Gove. They are like that and have been like that for well over 20 and still years. Are. And still are. Well over 20 years. So after David Cameron demoted Michael Gove, that was it. It was over for David Cameron. Um, so uh, she also claims that the cover-up of allegations of sexual misconduct, which you were talking about, um, uh, Patrick, because obviously all the people remember it as being Partygate, it was the, the fact that Boris Johnson claimed not to have known about uh, rumours about Chris Pincher and then he reappointed him anyway. That was why people actually lost patience with uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, Dean Joyce claims that the cover-up of allegations of sexual misconduct made against Chris Pincher were overblown in order to take Boris Johnson out. 
And that's when um, the, you know, the bottom pinching guy, was his name? Chris Pincher. Pincher, a gay man, had too much to drink in the Carlton Club bar and wrongly grabbed another man's bottom. That was what precipitated the beginning of the end. Does that make sense to you? The reason why it doesn't is because they were waiting for anything to get him. And once that anything, no matter how small, came along, they'd blow it up using Twitter and social media and every Remain journalist, the BBC, Sky, every lefty, but mostly Conservative MPs. Uh, There's Jane Garvey there reading some of uh, Nadine Doherty's claims. Does this hold water, Patrick? Well, the allegation that Chris Pincher's cover-up was overblown as a pretext to get rid of Boris Johnson, I mean, no, not really. I mean, what that sort of critique of the Chris Pincher case overlooks is that it was just the straw that broke the camel's back and that it was after lots and lots of allegations of Boris Johnson dissembling or being less than candid a, a, about things. And why it's particularly strange that Nadine Doris should make that argument is one of the strongest sort of bits of the book, insofar as you can say there are strong bits of this book, is where she's talking, I think quite sincerely, about the rotten culture of Westminster, about sexual misconduct... And she sort of cites all of that as evidence that the Tory party is rotten and dysfunctional. But then she sees something like that that is sort of slightly factually inconvenient for her and then, you know, seizes on the words of a source who cocks a sceptical eyebrow at it. I mean, you you mentioned she's spoken to Boris Johnson at some length in the book and, in fact, uh, that's what's been picked up uh, by some of the papers today. Uh, with uh, Boris Johnson saying that the Conservative Party is drifting to defeat, the Prime Minister is a stooge of Dominic Cummings and so on. Is there any recognition from either Boris Johnson or Nadine Doris that at least part of his downfall was the fault of Boris Johnson? Boris Johnson does admit to making mistakes. He acknowledges that hiring Dominic Cummings was perhaps short-sighted. He's quite candid about... But uh, Dominic Cummings' character and, you know, why he might have, you know, been uh, a choice to break the logjam in Parliament in 2019 but was never going to run number 10. Um, but, you know... But that, I, even then, that's still blaming Dominic Cummings, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, why, this, why Boris Johnson's downfall, as I write in my review, is so difficult for his fans to take is because he was basically the sole author of it. That's not to say that Nadine Dorries is totally wrong to say there were people working to bring down Boris Johnson. Clearly, by the end, there were... But it's difficult for people to take that this guy who won such a massive landslide, could have rewritten the rules of British politics, Mm. reverted to type and lived down to expectations and was brought down the way you would have expected him to be brought down. Uh, And so, Nadine, Dorries, this whole book is an exercise in looking for excuses that absolve Boris Johnson of blame. So there isn't a huge amount of of critical self-reflection from from either parties, I would say. Tell you what, let's get another, just let's just dip in randomly, another bit of uh, the book as voiced, as read by Jane Garvey. I smiled back and eased the peel from the fruit. Louise knew me well. She didn't only keep me safe on time and in check, she kept me fed too. Oh, it's even better on the second. Can I, can I just briefly interject? That's one. That's one thing that is very likable about Nadine Dorries in this book. Yeah. She's she's and, and civil servants who did work with her, the the department she was a minister at do say this. She's nice to the little person. She's nice about her driver. She's nice about waiters. Kelly and Lynn in the common salon. So you know there are brief flashes of uh, quite deep and genuine humanity from Nadine Dorries. I'd like to say that in the interest of fairness. In the interest of very important that patch is very important. Now uh, she's slightly less forgiving about the members of the movement. Uh, which she claims has been 
ousting Tory leaders for donkey's years, but ever since uh, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, no less. One of those, she blames, alongside Michael Gove, is, because obviously Michael Gove, former Times columnist, is our very own Daniel Finkelstein, regular Times columnist, regular on the show, and he's on our new podcast, How to Win an Election. So I asked Danny, is he a part of the movement? <laughs> I think this phrase, Matt, refers to a group inside the Federation of Conservative Students. And in 1986, when the Federation of Conservative Students was abolished, I was actually on the SDP's National Committee. And I was a candidate in, for the SDP in Brent East. So I think she may just have the wrong person. <laughs> but, Danny, uh, Nadine Doris claims, actually throughout the book, uh, her uh, book, she claims that you you and Michael Gove in particular used your positions as journalists and, and uh, senior conservatives to, to plot again and again against Tory leaders and most recently uh, Boris Johnson. Did you want to remove Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? Well, I think anyone who reads my column will know that I did uh, in a parliamentary democracy he lost the confidence of his parliamentary colleagues and i certainly encouraged them in print uh to to lose that confidence i didn't think he was fit this was something that was about the country she seems to think it's about the conservative party but in my view it was about the country but there's a suggestion beyond that that this was part of some what was described as an elaborate plot there's even some sort of very odd story that i had to have the daily mail clarify uh, wasn't me, in which it suggested that I and the group of other people visited Ian Duncan Smith's house and were rude to his wife, which, again, as people who know me would think was pretty unlikely. So um, I, I, what she's done is turn a group of arguments that are held by many listeners, which was that we felt that Boris Johnson had fallen below the standards required from a prime minister from an ethical point of view, uh, that uh, it was no longer tenable for him to remain. And we suggested to Conservative MPs they should to reflect upon that. Uh, and I was very clear about it, and I still am, and I'm not, I'm not the result from that in any way. But the suggestion that that constitutes a plot uh, is ridiculous. So whose fault is it that Boris Johnson isn't Prime Minister anymore? Well, somebody said very well that, that Boris Johnson had brought down David Cameron and Theresa May and also brought down himself. Uh, so I would say um, he was responsible for that. But look, I take my share of responsibility for arguing that Boris Johnson should not remain leader of the Conservative Party. I didn't have any power in achieving that outcome, but I hope I had influence. That's the point of writing a column in The Times, to try to uh, persuade people of your point of view. And I hope I did that. And I don't remotely regret doing that and she and insofar as she argues that was not a good idea for the country or for the conservative party though it's mainly the latter of those two things that she's concerned about then that then i'm then that's a perfectly uh, reasonable argument to have but i have two objections uh to what she's suggesting the first is um suggesting an elaborate plot which you know, at least I can say that my own involvement in it is entirely ridiculous. So <laughs> maybe the rest of it is. I can't say because it refers to people uh, who she thinks were plotting I wasn't present at, so I have no idea. Um, but, I, but I think that... So the first thing is I don't think it was an elaborate plot. And the second is I object to her basic thesis, which is uh, that the, the, the prime ministers have a direct mandate from the electorate 
not from Parliament. And I disapprove of that constitutionally. I think that uh, we have a parliamentary democracy. Someone is elected as a leader of the parliamentary party. Of course, their parliamentary colleagues should respect the fact that they've been elected uh, as the leader of a party in an election. And that has a special force. That's certainly one of the things you should take into consideration. I don't doubt that for a minute. But It is also Parliament's job to ensure that we have a suitable ethical Prime Minister who respects the rule of law and democratic norms. And if they determine that, for instance, in the case of uh, the the Pincher case, they determined the Prime Minister wasn't someone whose word they trusted, then they removed him. And I, I, I agreed with that judgment, but that's not a plot. Just finally then, Danny, you, you, you explained how you, you have had a correction for the Daily Mail that you didn't go around to Ian Duncan Smith's house and be rude to his wife. Uh, just for clarity, uh, you're, are you Dr No who once chopped up a rabbit into four pieces and nailed it to no, someone's door? By the way, in the Mail's case, they, they clarified it. I'm respectful of newspapers that have to put together you know, extracts from books and entertain and inform their readers. And I'm respectful of the job that the journalists do, and I don't... I'm not about trying to humiliate or embarrass anybody. Um, and I was pleased that the mail very promptly and um, ethically and um, and without argument uh, clarified that they did not mean me. And I'm satisfied with that without having to wish to accuse them of anything. Danny Finkelstein, Lord Finkelstein there, denying that he's part of the movement which helped bring down... A number of Tory leaders, from Ian Duncan-Smith to Boris Johnson. Uh, Well, let's try and uh, find out, actually, whether supporters of Boris Johnson have signed up to this theory. Uh, Stephen Greenhalgh, Lord Greenhalgh, joins us now. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Matt. Do you believe in the movement? No, look, that's a very silly question. The movement exists. You know, all the time I've been in Conservative... (laughs) So you do believe in it? talk about the movement. No, I know the movement exists, but the movement isn't a social democrat like Lord Finkelstein. It's the movement of the people that were booted out of the party under Norman Tebbit. I had people who, who were in the movement in my time as Hamilton Fulham Council. Uh, they were ex-movement people. Look, the movement is around. It's known as a force. And in fact, I've been introduced to one of the people that was covered in the serialisation in the mail, um, Dougie Smith, when it was introduced to me by at a dinner party by Danny Kruger, who's now an MP. He's the master of the dark arts, was how I was introduced to uh, to Dougie, who is obviously the husband of Manira, who I have a huge amount of respect for. So the movement is terminology that's used by people who know something about the Conservative Party. For me, the story about the rabbit, I was told that story about 25 years ago. I know exactly what the story. It's not new to me. It's just an old story. It's not fiction. It's fact. And I can talk to Toby Baxendale about the rabbit story if you want to get more information. This is the, this is the rabbit. Not, this is the rabbit that was chopped yeah, up. Yeah, but it's but it's, suppose, but it's suppose, about twenty-five years old. That story. So, but it's so, not rubbish. So, Steve, I suppose Mike, the question is then: if the movement is so powerful and has been for so long, why does it keep installing leaders that it then sets about removing? Wouldn't it be better if they just installed people as leader that they liked? Or is it actually the truth? The reason that Boris Johnson. Uh, was forced to resign was because of a series of mistakes, misjudgments, mistruths that he committed and he lost the support of his colleagues. Um, Matt, Matt, you've got me on this, I guess, this programme and your show for a bit of balance because we've had a a one-sided 29-minute on why Boris is rubbish and should go. I'm going to give you one minute that there was a plot. There was a plot. I was a member of the Department of Housing uh, uh, levelling up housing and communities. I was on a WhatsApp group that became ex-ministers because they all resigned. I watched Kemi Badenoch, the then 
a Minister of State, my level in the department, exhorting Sarah Dines, who was a junior PPS, exhorting um, Danny Kruger to resign, 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 resign. It was a plot, but it was not a very good plot, is what I would say. It was a crap plot, is my view. But it was definitely a plot. But is it a plot? But I suppose the question is, is this not just is the point that Danny Finkelstein makes? This is parliamentary democracy. You are, you you become leader of the party on the basis that you can command support No, it's not parliamentary democracy. It's a herd mentality. Oh, the herd wants to get rid of Boris. Let's all do it. That's what Boris said. The herd moves. Yes, but He's wasn't Boris right. Johnson... But wasn't, just... wasn't Boris Johnson at the forefront of the herd that wanted to get rid of Theresa no, May? he wasn't. He was, he was the Prime Minister and the herd no, 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 moved no, no. and said, we don't want you, Prime Minister. No, he was at the front of the herd. Are oh, you talking about Theresa May? Theresa now, you're changing topics. Look, yeah, well, he might want to be Prime Minister. That, I'm not arguing that point, but let's just talk about what happened to Boris. Let's not then zoom back to but it's what not, happened to my Theresa point May. Is I wasn't unique. around then. It's not unique, is it? Well, no, it's not unique. It's, it's just what unique. happens no, when you lose unique. the confidence of your colleagues. Yeah. Boris Johnson resigned yeah, well. from the Cabinet to try and uh, to try and bring down Theresa May, which he helped success, successfully do. That's just what happens in politics. It's not some shadowy organisation. It's people who, did, who lost faith in him. I think Stephen Greenhouse just hung up. Is he gone? Has he hung up? Oh. Oh, there we are. Oh, well, I don't know what to say to that. Maybe, maybe, he's been, maybe he's been brought down by a shadowy organisation or a lack of Wi-Fi signal. Oh, but in that case, um, if, we, if, we have, if, we, if we lost him, is he gone? Oh, OK. Oh, well, in that case, shall I play some more clips of the book? It was early Sunday morning and Boris greeted me in the kitchen of his house in the Cotswolds. Both the lids of the Arga were up and I had to take a very deep breath. I'm a woman of a certain age who's had an Arga since I left the poverty of my background. However, you can never escape your upbringing. And the thing about an Arga is, when the lids are up, the heat is escaping. Well, I, it turns out Stephen's back. Stephen, you didn't hang up on us. Someone call me. Someone, no, someone called me from number 10 saying, I'm part of the movement, I'm going to get you. <laughs> that, is, that is the odd God honest truth. <laughs> Steve, we'll let you off. We'll let you off. No, the point I, I was making is that, that Boris Johnson lost confidence in Theresa May, resigned, and was a part of the of the people yeah, yeah, that no, he would try to remove. That's, that's just the well, look. That, that's the greasy pole of politics. Of course, that's so. The greasy why pole is of why is it a greasy pole of politics with Theresa May? And it's a it's because a, it's it wasn't a mass prof. exodus to get rid of an MP that was the best bloody electoral asset the party's had in forty five years. It's, it's different. She was, you know, it's different. Isn't the difference just that you like Boris Johnson and you didn't like Theresa May? Isn't that just the difference? Well, no, I like Theresa May, actually. I worked with her when she was Home Secretary. I worked for Boris as mayor. I found myself curiously liking both of, both of them. <laughs> and there was a classic meeting where they both turned on me and killed me in their own way and, and, and actually bonded by attacking me. So I like both of them. I'm not a pro-Boris anti-Theresa. They're both world-class politicians. I'm a humble middle-of-the-road nobody, but I like both of them. Do you think that, just finally then, is Rishi Sunak a stooge of Dominic Cummings and is he leading the Tory parties to disaster, as Boris Johnson says? What I will say about Rishi Sunak, and I'm saying this as an entrepreneur who's not had a boss for years, worked for Boris um, and been a council leader, I think he's a managerial guy. I think he's someone who's always had a boss. And now he's Prime Minister. I'm not sure he's, 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 he's someone that I find um, uh, engaging, but he works hard and knows his facts. And, you know, clearly he's got something about him. Otherwise, he wouldn't be prime minister. I mean, he's obviously got that class about him. But I'm not inspired by him. And I, but I hope he wins us the election because we're not going to have anyone else. And I'm a conservative and I want Rishi to win because I don't want the, the socialists to win. So I'm going to work for Rishi. It's just I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm very loyal to Boris. 
Stephen, good to speak to you. I'm glad we got you back as well. I'm glad we didn't end with you um, you hanging up. Uh, Stephen Greenhouse, Lord Greenhouse, thanks very much for joining us uh, today. And there you are. If you want to read Patrick Maguire's review of Nadine Doris's book, The Plot, The Assassination... Was it called The Plot, The Assassination of Boris Johnson? The Plot, The Political Assassination of Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's online at thetimes.co.uk. Patrick, lovely to see uh, Times Radio's uh, senior political correspondent. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes and head over to How to Win an Election. Peter Mandelson, Daniel Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie guiding you through the ways you can win and lose millions of votes uh, landing every Tuesday, wherever you're listening to this. Make sure you hit subscribe because uh, it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. But for now, from me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Goodbye. 